Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today are two guests. First from Bloomfield Hills, we have Mark Chutko. Mark is a member at DICOMA and heads the Government Investigations and Corporate Compliance National Practice. Then also from the firm joining us from Dallas is Jason Ross, who focuses on white collar criminal defense, government investigations and compliance. First, Jason, Mark, thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to talk to us. Absolutely, happy to be here. here. Happy to have you both. So let's dive in. We're going to be talking today about monitorship, which is an issue both clouded in mystery and confusion uh, for a lot of people. Um, The Justice Department's approach to monitors has changed recently, as you both, I'm sure, know. Jason, why don't we start with you? Uh, Can you give us an overview of how the DOJ's approach has evolved of late? Absolutely. Um, Thanks, Adam. Uh, So in 2021, in late 2021, uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco gave a speech in which she announced that um, that DOJ was rescinding pre- previous guidance um, that su- suggested that monitorships would be the exception and not the rule. Um, the monitorships are now back in favor. Um, DOJ has announced uh, under Lisa Monaco um, that they are free to require the imposition of a monitor in a DPA or an NPA. Um, This did signal a a rather dramatic about face in DOJ's approach, uh, which really had been waning in terms of the popularity of monitors. Um, They really caught hold in the early 2000s. In 05, 06, we kind of saw a peak in monitorships. Um, But there was also growing sentiment um, within the defense community uh, about the opaque process Um, a revolving door from DOJ where a prosecutor would go into private practice and lo and behold, they would be selected by their former colleagues uh, to to get a really uh, plum assignment. Well, it's interesting, you know, to see this wave go back the other way um, and what it's ultimately going to mean, of course, we'll find out over the next few years. Now, Mark, once a monitor is appointed, what can compliance teams expect these days? Well, in short, I would say be ready for some change. Uh, The company has had problems in the past, and that's why uh, a compliance monitor has been imposed on them. Uh, So a lot of it really depends on who this monitor is um, and how they're going to approach their job. You're going to want to know, are they pragmatic, open-minded? Are they familiar with the industry and the risks, um, the challenges there? does the does the monitor have a previous record in in monitorships? Have there been disputes or controversies in the past? Complaints of cost overruns. The company should already have a lot of intel on this because they weighed in on it as part of the selection process. But if they don't, they're going to want to know that kind of stuff before the monitor arrives. The other thing is, what is the scope of the monitor's work? Um, the first document probably to take a look at even before the monitor shows up is the enforcement agreement, whether that happens to be a, a non-prosecution agreement or a deferred prosecution agreement or a, or a plea agreement. That is going to define in broad brushstrokes the monitor's work, um, how disputes are resolved, what kind of reports get generated as part of that person's work, uh, and what standards that they're going to use to evaluate the company's ultimate compliance. Um, there are going to be additional opportunities 
for the company to to weigh in on more specifics of the scope of the work, and they really should take that opportunity to do that for the not only the scope but the work plan and and the projected costs. When the monitor arrives, they're going to start doing interviews because they need to understand a little bit about the company, and they're going to interview at all levels. Um, you've probably heard the uh, buzzword, the tone at the top, the mood in the middle. Um, and the buzz at the bottom, they're going to hit all of those levels. Usually the monitor is going to come in and uh, talk with company leadership at the very onset to understand the business a little bit more, how the company is organized, um, what their reporting systems are, their internal controls, and whatever regulatory environment they're operating under. Uh, next, they're going to go to the mid-level managers, the business unit manager, managers with the emphasis on those business components that were part of the problem that led to the enforcement in the first place. Um, they're going to want to know from those managers what expect what pressures they're feeling from above them in the hierarchy and what expectations they're setting below and whether that's contributing to corner cutting at all. And finally, they're going to look to the buzz at the bottom. They're going to go to the employees, the workers at the ground floor. Um, they're going to try to find out, are they allowed to voice opinions when things go wrong? without fear of reprisal. Um, and then finally, it may well be that they're gonna interview outside the company. Um, it really depends on the type of wrongdoing that got them there in the first place. Um, they will seek potentially input from contractors, vendors, and even customers. And ultimately, they're gonna look at the compliance plan that the company currently has in place. They're gonna try to determine, was it, has it been tested? Has it been properly resourced and implemented? Likely not, at least from the government's perspective, or they wouldn't have imposed the compliance monitor in the first place, but there, the monitor is going to look at that kind of work. Um, and my advice to a company faced with this situation is really try to find a, a point of contact within the company that has some level of respect with senior management and access to all of these players that we've just talked about. Management, the board of uh, directors that's overseeing this monitorship and the business units that are most impacted. Well, you need that ally to make sure the monitor can get the information he or she needs and then ultimately that the organization will act upon. Historically, a monitor can pose challenges, but can also be the compliance team's best friend, pushing the company to strengthen the compliance program. Should we expect that to continue, Mark? And if so, how does compliance best capitalize on this new ally without frankly alienating itself from the business unit? Well, the policies of the department have changed a bit with more of an emphasis on uh, corporate compliance monitors, but I think that the tension is always going to remain. Um, a compliance monitor, after all, it's an outsider. They may be perceived by employees as like the internal affairs officer at a police department. And so it's going to be important for the company to try to minimize those negative impressions while promoting the, uh, the benefits, the friendships that you're talking about. Um, the DOJ is trying to help promote alignment of those kind of interests um, by some of its uh, recent signaling that the uh, chief compliance officers and CEOs are going to have to certify the company's compliance program that it's reasonably designed uh, to prevent future violations. This this is going to create some pressure at the top of the organization to turn things around and ultimately, uh, hopefully, will align the interests of senior management with the compliance monitor. 
Um, but before this person arrives at the company, the company is going to really need to lay some groundwork ahead of time because changes don't really happen right away. So there's going to have to be some component of education of employees to, so that they have buy-in that change is necessary and that the uh, compliance monitor that will be arriving is going to help them. Um, you know, when the monitor comes in, um, you want to show them that they're not the vice principal there to punish folks, but they're a consultant there to improve things. Um, the company's likely already taken some remedial steps before the monitor has come in and that, to root out the problems that uh, caused the enforcement action in the first place. Um, and this may include removing uh, managers or employees that were, let's say, the bad apples who may have caused the problem in the first place. So that, that may help dampen some of the naysaying that employees will naturally have when an outsider comes in to overlook what they're doing. Um, having some of the bad apples gone may help the rest of the employees um, on a kind of a fresh start or a, a reset with new emphasis on compliance. But then once the monitor arrives, I think that the company is going to want to do things to develop a real productive working relationship with this person. Uh, the initial meetings with senior management and the business units is going to be especially important to set expectations and establish a tone that will hopefully carry through the monitorship itself. And that's going to be needed to be followed up with regular communications constantly between uh, management, the mid-level managers, and the monitor. You know, and ultimately, it's it's like parenting. Yeah, you want to have some level of unity. If if employees see that there's tension between the compliance manager, outside corporate manager, and uh, monitor, I'm sorry, and management itself, they may end up discounting the monitor um, or try to circumvent that person. So, I think it would be helpful um, to the extent that there is going to inevitably be disputes between the monitor and management. They should resolve those behind closed doors so that they can show some level of unity when the monitor is out on the floor. Um, but, you know, like parenting, sometimes one party needs to be the enforcer. Uh, you, you better do what mom says or you know what's going to happen. So if appropriate, the chief compliance officer or whoever that point of contact is um, within the company um, should use on or may want to use on occasion the monitor's authority to make things happen that maybe employees otherwise wouldn't want to do. Well, whatever happens, you certainly want to have the whole organization behind the changes and not have the attitude that, well, once the monitor's gone, we can go back to where we were. And that would obviously be a prescription for disaster. So, Jason, for the monitor to do his or her job, um, one practical consideration is the monitor is going to need to have some data showing how the company is doing. What metrics should the compliance team typically strive to have? Sure, that's that's a good question, Adam. And you know, I think we all see just in uh, in the industry literature that data analytics is certainly a focus and a buzzword at DOJ. Um, uh, recent guidance from DOJ says point blank uh, that to be eligible for compliance credit or for uh, cooperation credit, uh, companies should be incorporating data analytics uh, into their compliance programs. Um, so in terms of you know, how that should play out in any particular monitorship. Um, I think you have to look at, at the risk areas, you know, what got you to the monitorship in the first place? Uh, what were the key violations? Um, what are the, the risks for the particular 
business, the industry, um, and and where the, you know, for lack of a better word, where the screw ups were. Um, you know, if if it's anti-bribery, anti-corruption, you're going to be looking at vendor payments, uh, gifts and entertainment, third-party payments, things of that sort. Um, another key data point that a monitor is going to want to uh, keep a pulse on is uh, hotline and helpline calls. Um, you know, data on how those calls into the company are being tracked uh, from cradle to grave, from the initiate initiation of a um, a new issue to how it's resolved, who handles it, uh, what the timeline is on, on how that gets uh, gets the appropriate attention within the company. Um, so that's what I'd say, you know, it, it's going to be very um, company specific and, you know, violation specific. Which is true of most things with compliance. Now, monitorships come to an end eventually. How can compliance teams ensure that what they've built during the monitorship won't disappear with the monitor? Uh, Mark, you want to go on that one? Sure. Um, hopefully, the monitor, by the time that that person leaves, has identified and addressed all the root causes of some of the non-compliance that caused the problems in the first place, so it won't happen in the future. And they've implemented certain fixes, removed bad apples, established a code of conduct if that one didn't exist, and put other systems in place to try to ensure that uh, the company is going in the right direction. But you know, ultimately, no amount of rules or regulations or systems are going to ensure compliance if you don't have the buy-in of the employees, uh, both from top to bottom of the company. And a lot of that's cultural. Um, you can't just have periodic videos by the chief compliance officer or the CEO. We got to do better. It's going to be really continually education at all levels. And so one thing is you got to ensure that employees know that they won't be punished for doing the right thing. And to the opposite of that, that they'll be promoted, uh, that there's an emphasis that it's profitable to follow the law, that a company's reputation on things like ESG uh, builds goodwill, which in turn brings in customers and brings in profits. I think those combination of steps will go a long way to ensure that uh, the reforms that were put in place by the monitor are enduring. And enduring is truly what we want. Well, Mark, Jason, thank you for sharing these insights with us. I wanna thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletow from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.